Our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, but we're going to read the Beatitudes, uh, that is everything uh, in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, in its entirety this morning. We'll do that over the next handful of Sundays together. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, Matthew writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's inspired and infallible word. You may be seated. Before we look specifically at our text, we need to say a few things by way of introduction concerning the Sermon on the Mount. The Old Testament is the book of Adam, whose story is very tragic. Adam was not only the first man on the earth, but he was the first king. He was given dominion over all the earth to subdue it and to rule it. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. But Adam, the first monarch, fell soon after he began to rule. And his fall brought about the curse, the curse which the Old Testament both begins with and ends with. But the New Testament begins with the presentation of a new sovereign man, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will not fall, and the one who brings blessing rather than curse. The second Adam, he is wholly unlike the first Adam. He's a perfect ruler. He's a perfect sovereign. You see, the first king sinned and left a curse. The second king was sinless, and he leaves a blessing. We see that uttered in Jesus' words right here in the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've ever studied the Sermon on the Mount before, if you've ever read any commentaries, any good books on the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, You'll hear me uh, throughout this series reference various commentators, various pastors, and as I do, just mark those down, maybe in the the margin of your uh, notes there, because those would be commendable men, commendable resources uh, with which I would encourage you to read. I'll go ahead and give you one right now. If you don't have a copy of Martin Lloyd-Jones's Commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, It might be, second to Scripture, the preeminent work on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a small volume, some 600 pages in length, but Martin Lloyd-Jones is incredibly readable. Um, I I would encourage you to get a copy of Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. You'll be truly blessed. Use Use it in your devotional times. You'll be thoroughly encouraged, challenged, and edified. Uh, I know. But there are several wrong views 
of the Sermon on the Mount. Before we jump into Jesus' specific teaching here, I think we need to become familiar with, with what some of those wrong understandings or wrong views or wrong interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount are. This isn't on your outline. You can write it in the margin if you wish, or you can just take mental note. But the first wrong view of the Sermon on the Mount would be the restoration view. The restoration view. Uh, This view says uh, or thinks that if we can just get everyone to live out the Sermon on the Mount, then we can produce the kingdom of God here on earth. If we can just get everybody to do everything that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, basically we can inaugurate the kingdom here on earth. Wars will end, peace will reign, and we'll see renewal in our communities. Friends, that's a wrong view of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have to go any farther than Romans chapter 1 and 2 to see that that's not the case. We, we are not evolving as a human race. We are devolving. Sin, uh, sin is running its course. We're spiraling downward. Now, we have great hope. Jesus is going to make all things new if we go back and look at our study through Ephesians. But the restoration view of the Sermon on the Mount is an incorrect view. It's an incorrect interpretation. We are not trying to produce the kingdom of God on earth. The second wrong view of the Sermon on the Mount would be this, that it's nothing more than an an elaboration of the Mosaic Law. All Jesus is doing here is he's just reasserting or restating the Mosaic Law. Uh, This view would say, well, the Pharisees are misrepresenting the law, which you don't have to go very far in Matthew's gospel or any gospel for that matter to see that. The Pharisees are misrepresenting the law, so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount simply explains the law giving it a higher spiritual content. Friends, I would say the Sermon on the Mount does explain in many ways the law, parallels the law, as a matter of fact, in many ways, but it goes beyond it for Jesus' words penetrate to the heart, and that's the whole point. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's weeding through our religiousness and getting down to the heart. The core of who we are are. So Jesus isn't just simply reiterating the Mosaic law. He is exposing and penetrating down to the human heart in the Sermon on the Mount. The third and last wrong view, and there are others. These are just three that you'll find typically. The third and last wrong view, a wrong interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount is the it's not for me view. You see, some conclude that the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with modern Christians. They say that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to Jews to inaugurate his kingdom, but the Jews didn't believe his message. And so those that hold the not-for-me view, they would, would hold that Jesus will reintroduce the Sermon on the Mount during the millennial kingdom where it will serve as the rule for the kingdom age. In other words, this is for later it's not for me now. This is, this is Jesus' rule for the millennial kingdom. It's for later, not for now. The problem with this is that every teaching found in the Sermon on the Mount is found in later books of the New Testament, particularly the epistles. Every word that Jesus utters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, are found in other places of the New Testament, particularly the epistles. You see, if the Sermon on the Mount is not for us, then we must question if much of the New uh, Testament is for us. Friends, let me submit to you that we are the intended recipients of Jesus' glorious teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It is for us today. 
It has practical implications on our life today. Well, why should we study the Sermon on the Mount? Why, why endeavor? Why take 14 months or so to, to wade through and study through the Sermon on the Mount? Let me give you just a few reasons. Again, these don't appear on your outline. Number one, Jesus enabled us to live the Sermon on the Mount by dying for us. Jesus died to enable us to live out the Sermon on the Mount. I think about Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 through 14, Titus, or Paul writes there rather, for the grace of God has appeared. When you read that, for the grace of God has appeared, we're to understand that as Jesus has appeared. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. Not only in the age to come, but in this present age as we wait For our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem for himself a people for his very own possession. Jesus died to enable us to live the obedient Christian life, which would include Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So why should we study it? Because Jesus died to enable us to live it. That's why. Secondly, Why should we study the Sermon on the Mount? Because nothing shows me my absolute need to be born again as the Sermon on the Mount. You see the Beatitudes, what they do, uh, that's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. That's where we're going to be for the next handful of weeks. The Beatitudes, everything uh, that, that Jesus says, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you when you. Those are the Beatitudes. We might call them the beautiful attitudes, if that's a sticky thought for you. Nothing shows me my absolute need to be born again in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, because they crush every particle of self-righteousness. They reveal our utter helplessness apart from the grace of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace as the Sermon on the Mount does. You see, the teaching in this sermon certainly sets a high standard. If we take it seriously, we realize that we cannot attain it on our own, and therefore we cannot merit salvation on our own. There's another wrong view or interpretation that I didn't give you here, and that's, that's this. We are saved by living out Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, if you can obtain this, this standard of righteousness, then you can save yourself. It's just another way of, uh, of saying you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Nothing could be farther from the truth because the Beatitudes crush any self-righteousness. We don't have a hope unless God enables us to live out the very words that he calls us to obey by conversion and the indwelling Holy Spirit. No follower of Christ can ever say, I've done all I should. No matter how far we've traveled along the Christian road, the Sermon on the Mount tells us there's more ahead. There's more growing to take place ahead. We we never come to a point in the Christian life where we arrive. We never come to a point in the Christian life where, where we are poor enough in the Spirit. We never come to a place in the Christian life where we mourn enough over our sin. We never come to a place in the Christian life where we are meek enough or where we hunger and thirst for righteousness enough. There's always more ground to be covered. And by God's enabling grace, we can be growing. We call that the process of sanctification, right? That's what begins taking place the moment of conversion until either Jesus returns or we breathe life's final breath. 
everything in between. We call that the process of sanctification. And we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We have great confidence. Great confidence. But no, no, no matter how far we travel, no matter how much we grow, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, really the entire Bible, tells us that there is more growth that can take place. So Jesus died to enable to, us to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Nothing shows me my absolute need to be born again. Nothing shows me my absolute need to be converted than the Sermon on the Mount. And then third and lastly, it's one of the best means of evangelism. That's why we should study the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the world is looking for and desperately needs true Christians who embody Jesus' teaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not, not in and of our own strength. We're not trying to gut this out. We're not doing it on our own. But the world desperately needs to see Christians who live out the very profession which they make, whose lives resemble the same sovereign king whom they say they follow. You see, when the world looks at us and they, say, they see an incongruency there, it sends all kinds of mixed signals. You say you're a Christian, but yet you look so different from your Christ. Now, obviously, we're all fallen and sinful. New, new heart, the indwelling Holy Spirit, but we still live in a sinful flesh. Everybody pinch your arm here. Just, just grab a hunk of meat there. You know what that is? That's your earth suit. And as long as you live in that, we're fallen. As long as we remain in the flesh, we are fallen. But yet we can be growing as well. Growing as well. And that's one of the best means of evangelism. Is when people look at our lives and they see a growing congruency between what they see in our lives and the Jesus whom we say we follow. Well, what are some general lessons that can be drawn from the Sermon on the Mount? Let me give you just a couple here. There, there, we, I, we could preach the whole first message on this, just general lessons we learned from the Sermon on the Mount. But I, I'll give you several here, and then I will leave the rest of them to your own study. General lessons. I think number one is this. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words in Matthew 5 through 7, are a description of what every Christian is to be. Jesus' sermon is a description of what every Christian is to be. Not a description of some exceptional, elite subclass of Christians. You see, just as the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, found in Galatians 5, is to be ripening in every Christian's life, so every single follower of Christ is meant to exemplify, at least in bud form, every single quality that Jesus lists for us to be growing in in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, unlike our spiritual gifts where you're given one and I may be given a different one and, and you may be given some different ones and you may have a different one over here, unlike spiritual gifts where we're all differently endowed, the character qualities contained in the Sermon on the Mount are meant to be evident in the life of every believer. As a matter of fact, uh, each character quality, think about the, the Beatitudes here. So just look at your, your Bible here, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. You see poor in spirit. You see those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for Christ's sake. Every single one of those character qualities implies the other. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. You can't be poor in spirit without mourning over your own sin. 
You can't mourn over your own sin without hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so they're all interconnected. It's not like you do some of these and you do some of those. Every single one of these qualities, every single one of the descriptions that is given to us throughout the Sermon on the Mount is to be lived out by every single Christian without exception. In growing form, absolutely. Number two, not a single character quality in the Sermon on the Mount is a result of a natural tendency. Everybody grab a hunk of meat here. Paul said, there's nothing good that lives in me except what? Except what? Christ. Yeah, there's nothing good in me except Christ. And so Jesus isn't telling us here to live out the Sermon on the Mount by by trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. In other words, these are just natural tendencies. You just need to go and do them now. No man naturally conforms to the character described in the Sermon on the Mount. Each one of these character qualities pushes us to the fact that they are produced by grace alone, through faith alone, by the Spirit's operation in us alone. In other words, nobody is like this by birth or nature. You see, the Beatitudes show the non-Christian that he cannot please God by himself because he can't live up to the very requirements that are here in Jesus' sermon. On the other hand, the Beatitudes show the Christian who's been justified by faith how to live in order that he might please God. Let me rewind that for you. It's an important statement. The Sermon on the Mount shows the non-Christian that he or she cannot please God in and of themselves, in and of their own strength. But the Sermon on the Mount shows the Christian that by grace through faith, He or she can live these out by the operation of the Holy Spirit and that we can please God. You see, the whole sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, presupposes that a person has accepted the gospel and become a new creation. Jesus' entire sermon presupposes that a person has come to saving faith in Christ alone. Let me pause right here. Is it true of you? Is it true of you? If you set out to try to live out Jesus' words, better yet, or better said, if you set out to be obedient to Jesus' words and you have not come to saving faith, one, you'll fail, and two, it will gain you nothing as far as pleasing God or entrance into the kingdom. Have you come to a point of saving faith in Christ alone? You see, the real point of Jesus' sermon, I think, is to show the difference between a person who is saved by grace and a lost person. There's not a single sentence in the Sermon on the Mount that is not pointed at the contrast that exists between a Christian and a non-Christian. As a matter of fact, I think perhaps uh, the key verse of the Sermon on the Mount, you can jot this down if you're interested, I think that perhaps the key verse in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6, verse 8. Let your eyes find that there in your Bible. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. Particularly this phrase. Jesus says, do not be like them. Speaking about the Gentiles, Jesus says, do not be like them. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everyone else as we can. 
It should be the ambition of the Christian rather to be as different from the world as he can. Our ambition should be to be like Christ. You see, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. When the church is absolutely different from the world, the result is actually that she attracts the world. It leaves a bitter taste in the mouth of the world when the church looks just like the rest of the world. And our lives are incongruent with the very Jesus whom we say we follow. Let me give you an outline of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where your notes start this morning, if you're taking notes. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's addressing his kingdom citizens. As a matter of fact, uh, you'll see the word kingdom or kingdom of God appear some six or seven times throughout these three chapters. It is a massive theme of the Sermon on the Mount, that of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing here is he's addressing kingdom citizens. He's not addressing non-kingdom citizens. He's addressing kingdom citizens. And he's saying, do not be like the rest of the world. And so the teaching follows that shows a contrast between a true Christian and the rest of the world. Here's how I think we can break down or outline the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, Jesus will speak to the Christian's character. Jesus will speak to the Christian's character in Matthew chapter 5, really verses 1 through 12. Those are the Beatitudes. What's our character to be like? What character traits or character qualities are we to embody? Because we know Christ and are members of his kingdom, citizens of his kingdom. So Jesus first takes up the the Christian's character. Uh, The second thing that Jesus takes up is the Christian's influence. The Christian's influence. Beginning in verse 13 through verse 16, Jesus tells us that you're to be salty and that you're to be a great bright light. That's your influence. Are you being salty, Christians? Are you being a bright light, Christians? We'll study that more in depth later. But it has to do with your influence in the world. Number three, Jesus takes up the issue of the Christian's righteousness. The Christian's righteousness. Beginning in verses 17 through verse 48. We'll talk about anger and lust and divorce and and making oaths or swearing and retaliation and loving our enemies. Number four, Jesus takes up the issue of the Christian's piety. The Christian's piety. Beginning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus will talk about how we ought to pray. He'll talk about the discipline of fasting. Number five, Jesus takes up the issue of the Christian's ambition. The Christian's ambition. Beginning in verse 19 through verse 34. Jesus says, don't don't lay up treasures here on earth. Don't let that be your ambition. What a tragic ambition. If at the end of your life, when all is said and done, all you have is a bunch of earthly junk to represent your life and your time here on earth. Tells us not to be anxious. Don't worry. Jesus opens chapter 7, speaking about the Christian's relationships. The Christian's relationships. Talks to us about judging others. Talks to us about the golden rule. 
talks to us about how to discern what is good fruit and what is bad fruit. And then lastly, Jesus takes up the issue of the Christian's commitment, particularly to himself, the Christian's commitment, beginning in verse 21 through the end of chapter 7. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out many demons? In other words, Lord, Lord, look, look, at, look at the list of my life. Look at all, the, all the, the, the tick marks I've made and all the check marks, all the things I've done and all the, all the things I've been involved in and all the, all the Bible studies and all the, the church groups and all the boards. And Jesus says, you've missed the point. You see, that's the whole point of the, of the, Beata, of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is drilling down to the heart. He says, yeah, you've done all those things, great things as a matter of fact, but at the end of the day, what about me? I never knew you never knew you. The Christian's character, the Christian's influence, the Christian's righteousness, the Christian's piety, the Christian's ambition, the Christian's relationships, and the Christian's commitment. I think that is a good outline for the Sermon on the Mount. Well, our specific study this morning brings us to the beginning of the Beatitudes, or again, we might say the beautiful attitudes. Everything that exists Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, those are the Beatitudes. As you think about the Beatitudes, the first four Beatitudes, uh, those who are poor in spirit, those who are uh, mourning over their sin, those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those focus on our vertical relationship with God. Now, the first four Beatitudes that you see there in verses 1 through 12, those are to be understood as vertical in nature, how, how we relate to God. And the second four, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, the peacemakers and the persecuted, those center on our horizontal relationships to man. Interesting to note, and we'll come back to this in a few minutes, as you think about the Mosaic law, though, as you think about the law that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and was given by God, they are also broken down into the way that we relate vertically to God and the way that we relate horizontally others. Let's look again at our text. Look at your Bible. Look at verses 1 through 3, chapter 5. Jesus says, seeing the crowds, or Matthew writes rather, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to say just a few things about these opening phrases here. Uh, Number one, Jesus went up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain. There are undoubtedly parallels here to Jesus and Moses. Moses went up and he received the law from God on Mount Sinai. Here, Jesus, in our text, goes up on the mountain to explain the implications of the law to his disciples. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, if you want to jot that down and look at it later. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. The writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus as being the greater Moses. Jesus is not only the greater Adam or the second Adam, but he's the greater Moses. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us his own authoritative interpretation of Moses' law. Jesus said all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this will become a a familiar phrase to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And the reason Jesus did that is because the Pharisees of Jesus' day We're seeking to live out the letter of the law without living out the spirit of the law. It was all for outward show. 
And Jesus says, yeah, but what about the heart? You look great on the outside. We even look later in Matthew's gospel to Matthew chapter 23, and Jesus takes those Pharisees to task, and he says, guys, you're beautiful on the outside. You're like the beautiful cup. You're like whitewashed tombs. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. That's what Jesus is drilling down to in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount exposes the heart and drives us to our need for a Savior and Redeemer. Jesus went up just like Moses went up. Then Jesus sat down. It's an interesting posture or position here. This is the posture of an authoritative rabbi. Jesus didn't stand to teach. Jesus sat to teach. He sat down. Matter of fact, Jesus is sitting down today, is he not? After making purification for sins, the writer of Hebrews tells us he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Implication, his work, as he declared himself, is finished. He now serves as our mediator and our advocate, but his redemptive work, insofar as it was accomplished on Calvary's cross, is finished. and He is now seated. And then lastly, look at the phrase, he opened his mouth and he taught them. That's what Matthew writes. You ask yourself, well, what's the significance here? What's the significance in the fact that Matthew would have recorded, Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, why do you suppose that Jesus mentioned that? Well, actually, the phrase, he opened his mouth, that's a Hebrew idiom. And what it indicates to us is that something very important is getting ready to be said. That's why Matthew emphasizes this. He doesn't just say, and Jesus said, or Jesus taught, and Jesus sat down and he opened his mouth. Implication, what's getting ready to be said is of massive importance. Matthew's letting the reader know, that's us, that the very words of God are coming and that the authoritative word was at hand. It's interesting to note that the very final words of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, just turn there and look at the very uh, final words of Matthew chapter 7. Look at Matthew 7, 28 through 29. Before I read it, just keep in mind, there is a reason that Matthew writes, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, implication, something very important, authoritative words are getting ready to flow. Now look at how chapter 7 concludes. Matthew writes, and when he, Jesus, finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for his teaching was with authority, not as their scribes taught. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is getting ready to utter authoritative words. Three things that I want us to look at in the time that we have left this morning. I want us to look at the blessing, I want us to look at the beatitude, and then I want us to look at the promise. Those are the next three fill-ins on your outline. I want us to look at the blessing, the beatitude, and then the promise that follows it. Number one, the blessing. Actually, number two on your outline, the blessing. Jesus said, blessed are. Two words. That's the blessing. Blessed are. We'll get to the are what here in a moment. But blessed are. Let me ask you this question. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Well, a quick glance at uh, a typical lexicon of the Greek language would reveal that 
there is most often a definition given that would resemble happiness. And why that is, while that is not an incorrect gloss definition, I think it is an incomplete definition of what the Greek word markarios, or blessed, really means. As you just glance down through the Beatitudes there, you'll see that Jesus pronounces a blessing for each one. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. What does that mean? It's true that a definition is happy. Markarios means there. It does carry the idea of happiness. But it carries another meaning that I think better fits the context of Jesus' teaching. And that meaning is this. The meaning of congratulations or to be approved of by God. If you do some study in a Greek lexicon, you'll see that all three of those appear. But oftentimes when you, when you hear uh, people talking about the Beatitudes, they'll talk about blessed meaning happiness. Again, that's not incorrect, it's just incomplete. It's incomplete. So you can read the Beatitudes and you can say, happy are the poor in spirit. And I'll talk about how that is here in a minute. Happy are the poor in spirit. Or you could read it and say, congratulations to the poor in spirit. I think the best interpretation is approved of by God are the poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit have on them the approval of God Almighty. I think that's the best interpretation of what the word markarios, or blessed, means here. To interpret the word markarios as happy is to see the Beatitudes more as emotional attitudes than as ethical responsibilities. Did you catch that? To to see the Beatitudes here as as just meaning happy are they who, is to see them as, as happy attitudes rather than ethical responsibilities. I think Jesus isn't telling us you'll be happy if you do these things. I think he's saying do these things. Be this person. Be growing in these ways. These aren't suggestions. Jesus isn't telling us that our lives will just be better, though they will if we live these out. That's not what Jesus is telling us. You see, happiness is a subjective state. But I think Jesus in the Beatitudes is making an objective statement or judgment about Christians. He's declaring not that they'll feel happy if they keep his word, but rather what God thinks of those who obey and exhibit these qualities. Are you tracking with me here? Uh Uh-huh, uh-uh. Good. Now, having said that, having said that I think that Jesus is making an objective declaration rather than a sub, speaking about the subjective state of Christians, just being happy, I think that there is absolutely a link between our pursuit of holiness and our happiness. In other words, when we are living out the obedient Christian life, we are never more happy. We're never more happy. And that doesn't mean the Christian life is a bed of roses. Absolutely far from that. As a matter of fact, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, foxes of the ground have holes and birds of the air have nests. Do you really want to come follow me? In other words, do you understand what you're signing up for, guys? It's not going to be easy. But you'll be happy. Why is that? Why why is holiness, why does holiness produce happiness? 
And I would answer that. There's a, a broader answer to that, but simply would state because holiness is what you were made for. The reason that happiness comes along with the obedient Christian life is because holiness is what you and I were made for, friends. Obedience is what you and I were made for, friends. Let me give you just a few misconceptions here about what it means to be poor in spirit. So, if if we're looking at the blessing, the blessing is, yes, it's happy. Congratulations is a good definition. I think the best definition, and one that we will keep coming back to over and over and over through our study of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, is that idea of approved of by God are the poor in spirit. That's the blessing, okay? The poor in spirit have God's approval on their lives. Now, let's talk about the Beatitude then. Jesus said, blessed are, well, blessed are what? He tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Before I say anything about what I think being poor in spirit actually means, let me give you a few misconceptions here just briefly. Uh, Misconception number one, poor in spirit does not mean to be materialistically poor. It's not what Jesus is driving at here. doesn't mean to be materially poor. If Matthew 5.3 refers to material poverty, then it would be an unchristian thing for a Christian or any other person to seek to alleviate the burdens of any needy person or any destitute person. We know that isn't the case because Jesus commends giving. Jesus commends serving the needs of others. It's interesting to note that God never sanctions material poverty in any passage of the Bible, but at the same time, He does warn against excess. He never sanctions poverty. He never pronounces a blessing on those who are are materially poor, per se, but he does warn those who are materially rich. So there is a tension there, okay? But Jesus isn't talking about the materially poor here in Matthew 5, 3. Poor in spirit does not mean materially poor. It also doesn't doesn't mean the conviction that a person is of no value at all. In other words, it doesn't mean, when we read poor in spirit, it doesn't mean uh, that person who has an absence of self-worth. It's not what Jesus is driving at. Neither does it mean shyness or weakness or lack of courage. It's not what poor in spirit means. It also doesn't refer to a showiness or a false humility. Remember the story of the two men who go up to the temple and pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stands off by himself and prays this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes out of all that I get. That's a false or a showy humility. But the tax collector, on the other hand, and here is the one who is really poor in spirit, by the way. It's the tax collector. Listen to how he responds. Probably familiar to most of you. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Everyone that exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Doesn't mean to be materially poor. Doesn't mean that, uh, that we have to have some conviction, that we have no self-worth doesn't mean shyness or weakness or lacking courage. 
It's not speaking about a false or a showy humility. And so then what does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he speaks about being poor in spirit? Well, the Greek word here, poor, it's the, it's the word tokos. Uh, it has the idea of, of crouching like a beggar. We probably all have this picture in our mind. You've probably walked through a, a subway or a bus station or, or seen someone on the side of the road or, or, or on a street corner who just is crouching down. Get the picture in your mind here. The word poor, it has the idea of crouching like a beggar. It's the picture of a person who crouches about just wretchedly begging. Such a person is fully dependent upon the giving of others and cannot survive apart from outside help. And so thus an excellent translation of poor is that of beggarly poor. Now, remember, Jesus is talking about us spiritually. He says, blessed are, or approved of by God, are those who are beggarly poor in spirit. Okay? Putting the pieces together here as we go. We could translate the passage so far. Approved of by God are the beggarly poor in spirit. Or approved of by God are those who are so desperately poor in their spiritual resources that they realize that they must have help from outside, namely from God. You see, to be poor in spirit means to understand that you and I are spiritually bankrupt before God. Apart from His grace in our lives, we are absolutely bankrupt. It means that we have nothing by way of merit to offer to God. It means that we have no basis to plead except that of Christ alone. We have nothing with which to buy the favor of heaven. So to be poor in spirit then, it's the absence of pride, it's the absence of self-assurance, it's the absence of self-reliance. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Approved of by God. Blessed are those who realize that God is their only hope. And they have no hope in themselves. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? To be poor in spirit, it means to be humble. It means to have a correct estimate of yourself. It's Romans 12, 3, right? Paul tells us, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think of yourself with, with sober judgment, according to the measure of grace that God has given you. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Poverty of spirit, again, it's not a false humility that says, I'm nothing, I'm not worth anything, I can't do anything. Rather, it's an honesty about our desperate condition before God and an understanding that apart from Christ, I can do nothing to please God. John Wesley, who I wouldn't agree with at every point, but he had made a great statement here, once said this. He said, the poor in spirit have a deep sense of the loathsome leprosy of sin which he brought with him from his mother's womb, which overspreads his whole soul and totally corrupts every power and faculty thereof. That's what someone who is poor in spirit understands, that I was born into this world under the curse of sin and save God, step in with his grace. I have not a thing to offer him that he would look on me favorably. It's interesting to note that the first beatitude here, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's one of the strongest statements in the Bible concerning the the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I can't please God. I can't earn my own salvation. It's not Jesus plus me. It's not me and a little bit of Jesus. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Grace and grace alone. Faith and faith alone. 
When you think about blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are destitute spiritually understand they have nothing to plead with. This verse is one of the great verses that underscores the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone because it shows a person's complete inability to please God by any human effort. It's the old hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the mountain fly. Save me or I die. Wash me, save me or I die. Another way to think about this phrase, poor in spirit, might be the word brokenness. Might write that down in the, just trying to, to, to color it in for you. You think of a coloring book, it's got, black, it's got black lines, and then you take the crayon and you color it in. I'm trying to color it in for you here, just a little bit. Brokenness is another way to color in what it means to be poor in spirit. Brokenness is evident when you realize you have no bargaining power with God. You can do only one thing, and that's ask for mercy. Is that you, friends? Have you stopped trying to bargain with God and instead just lay down the sword and just ask for mercy? You ask for mercy when you have nothing to give in exchange, nothing to offer. You can't broker a deal with God. It means the absence of defensiveness as well means that you're no longer trying to explain yourself, no longer trying to excuse yourself. It's the absence of finger-pointing either at God or anyone else. There's no finger-pointing when you're broken. There's no finger-pointing when you're poor in spirit. The one who points a finger needs to be broken. You'll never find a greater antithesis to the worldly spirit and outlook as you do in the following verses of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the world emphasizes. This will be familiar to you. This is what the world emphasizes. Self-reliance, self-confidence, self-expression. Just believe in yourself. Realize your potential. But poverty of spirit is the absolute opposite of this proud selfishness and self-sufficiency that characterizes the world in which we live in and the very world that we were saved out of and called to be different from. You know, the world has its own ideas about blessedness. The world says, blessed is he who's always right. Blessed is the man who is strong. Blessed is the man who rules. Blessed is the one who's satisfied with himself. Blessed is the one who's rich. Blessed is the one who's popular. Blessed is the one with the most achievements. And Jesus says, no, approved of by God are those who are spiritually destitute and understand they have nothing to commend themselves to God with except the shed blood of Christ alone. It's the point that Jesus is driving at here. Well, how do you become poor in spirit? The answer is, you don't look at yourself, but you begin looking at God. Think about Isaiah in Isaiah 6, right? There he is in the temple. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. You see, when our eyes seen the king, woe is me is what follows. We understand that we're that we are but dust before him, unless he steps in. But how do you become poor in spirit? Well, you become poor in spirit by starting out looking at God and not at yourself. The way to become poor in spirit is actually down, not up. There has to be a self-emptying before God comes in and begins filling. An emptying of self-reliance. An emptying of looking to your own power, your own strength, and your own might. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, if a man feels anything in the presence of God other than utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that he has never faced God. Let me rewind that for you here. If a man or a woman feels anything in the presence of God other than an utter poverty of spirit, what it means is ultimately that that man or that woman has never truly faced God. Because when we see the king, woe is me, is the response. There must be an emptying of self before there can be a filling with the things of God. There must become a poorness of spirit before we can become rich in God's blessings. How do you know if you're really poor in spirit? Let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. How do you know if you're poor in spirit? Well, he that is poor in spirit is continually being weaned of himself or weaned of herself. That's the sanctification process. Being sanctified is evident that we've, evidence that we've been justified, right? There is no sanctification. There is no becoming like Christ unless you've been justified and made new given a new heart, and given the indwelling spirit. So are you becoming increasingly weaned of yourself? He that's poor in spirit is a Christ admirer. We admire many things. We hold many things in high regard. Do you hold Christ in high regard? Do you have high and lofty thoughts of Christ, increasingly high and lofty thoughts of Christ? He that's poor in spirit or she that is poor in spirit is ever and I'll use the word complaining here, about his or her spiritual state. In other words, I understand how much more I need to grow. I understand that I'm not the finished product. He that's poor in spirit is much in prayer because prayer indicates our dependence upon God. He that's poor in spirit is content to take Christ on his own terms. We think about that for a moment. We want people to do things on our terms. But the person who's poor in spirit is content to take Jesus Christ on his terms and his terms alone. We'll look at the promise and we'll conclude here. Just as the eight qualities in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. Just as the Beatitudes, those eight qualities described in the Beatitudes, describe the responsibilities of every single Christian, so the eight promises that follow them are the sure privilege of every believer. Notice, Jesus says, blessed are, or approved of by God, are the beggarly poor in spirit. And then there's the promise, just as there is after each one of the eight Beatitudes. And the promise here is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's probably better to understand these as promises instead of rewards, though there is a sense in which they're both. They're consequences. These promises are consequences. The four, they're rewards, I would say. Notice this. Jesus uses the words here, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting. And as you look down through the Beatitudes, you see that that is listed under every of the Beatitudes. For theirs is the, for theirs is the, for they will. You see that? It's the Greek pronoun autos, they. 
they. And it's, it's better translated with, with an antithetical meaning. In other words, I would say this. Here's what I mean by that. What Jesus is saying here is, approved of by God are the beggarly poor in spirit for theirs, antithetically, and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. It carries the, the idea of these people rather than those people who will inherit the kingdom of heaven because we deserved it? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, because of free grace, we ought to be sharing the gospel with others that they might also, by God's grace, become inheritors of the kingdom. Let me close with one last thought here. Are the promises that follow the Beatitudes, are they to be seen and understood as present or future? So the promise here is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present or future? Uh, Look at the next Beatitude there. For they shall be comforted, present or future. For they shall inherit the earth, present or future. For they shall be satisfied, present or future. Receive mercy, present or future. See God, present or future. It's a good question to ask. How should we understand them? Do we experience them now or are they reserved for later? And I would say the answer is yes. The answer is yes. It's interesting to note that at the the first promise, connected to the first beatitude, it's in the present tense. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's present tense. That's now. Of course, it has a a later understanding as well. The last beatitude about the the persecuted there has a definite future tense. It says, great will your reward be in heaven. But the six middle beatitudes in verses 4 through 9, they use the simple verb tense, the simple verb shall, which interestingly enough, Jesus spoke Aramaic. This is probably more than you wanted to know. Jesus spoke Aramaic, and that verb shall probably doesn't exist uh, there. Uh, And so, having said that, uh, this is probably what we can understand here. Uh, Those those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven now and later. But as we look at 4 through 6, we're comforted now. We know that. We inherit the earth now, in a sense. We'll inherit it in its entirety later. But we're called to subdue it and to, to have dominion over the earth, particularly believers We're satisfied here, now. We receive mercy here and now. We see God at least in part now as we see him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I would say, yes, these these promises aren't just future, but we can experience them now as we're obedient to Jesus' call and command here. Let me give you a helpful interpretation. We're landing the plane here. Two sentences, we're done. Here's a helpful interpretation of Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Approved of by God, or pleasing to God, are the beggarly poor in spirit, who understand that they have nothing in themselves to commend themselves to God, and therefore they look to Him alone for grace. For theirs, and theirs alone, is the kingdom of heaven.